Charles and his wife Dana worshipped with us when they were in town for a meeting or a convention some six or so years ago. There's some of the many people who worship with us once and then on their return trips to D.C. make sure that they can be here on a Sunday morning. Charles is now one of the first people to like almost everything that the church posts on Facebook. And he and Dana have since developed the habit of inviting my husband Craig and I to dinner whenever they are in town. I've seen them some seven or eight times in my entire life, and yet Charles has become an enormous cheerleader. We don't talk outside of their being here on a Sunday morning, so when I received a text from Charles on Monday night, I was a bit alarmed. You got time to talk, it read, pushing my mind to ponder what bad thing had happened. I responded by letting him know that I was wrapping up dinner with a friend, but would call him momentarily. I got into my car and immediately placed the call. Nothing bad had happened at all. Instead, Charles expressed condolences for the recent loss of my stepmother, and then shared how he had read her obituary and how he and Dana had got out a map and realized that their home in St. Louis wasn't all that far from where my dad lives, an hour and a half or so. Please don't rent a car when you fly home, he said. Dana and I want to take you. Charles provided a rather profound example of what it might look like to actively bless those who mourn. It is an example that I will continue to think about when a friend or someone else is facing a similar loss, to not simply say, let me know if you need anything, but to come up with a concrete plan for what the difference I could make. And I wonder, I wonder if his words, if this offer is what it looks like to multiply the treasure that has been entrusted to us. Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston is a place I wanted to visit when we were in that city several years ago. I didn't want to go to see the architecture. I wanted to go to see what kind of a place had formed the congregation of people who were capable just days after a horrific mass shooting happened in their church to look the perpetrator of those mass, that mass shooting in the eye and say one after another, you took something beautiful from me, 
but I forgive you. You hurt a lot of people, but may God forgive you. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You've killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know, but may God have mercy on your soul. I think about these words spoken two days after this horrific event all the time. And especially whenever I am faced with a decision on whether or not I am going to forgive someone for how they have hurt me. And I wonder, I wonder if their example and these words, I wonder if this is what it looks like to multiply the treasure that has been entrusted to us. Last week, I watched a video shared by The Guardian about a young woman who was born and raised in Jerusalem. Sarah Vardy refused to be conscripted into the Israeli military service when she was a teenager. It is a conviction that led her to be sent to prison on three different times. But Yardi is completely unafraid of any consequences that she might endure today for living a life that is contrary to the values of many people in her nation. Today she spends time in many of the villages in the West Bank where she embodies a presence that is designed to protect Palestinians from Israeli settlers. Yardi describes how Palestinians are no longer able to shepherd their sheep right now, how they're no longer able to harvest their olives, even though it is harvest season. She describes how communities in the West Bank are not connected to water and how settlers have now come and drilled holes into the water containers that they do have, depleting them of whatever water they have access to. At the end of the clip, Yardi proclaims a message of peace. While we are all in a huge amount of pain, about what happened on October 7th, to really remember that we know the way forward, the way to prevent things like this happening, is never going to be a military way. Yardi's words are powerful, but it is her bold, and courageous ministry of presence that makes me ask how often I am willing to go and be with people who are suffering, including a war zone. And I wonder, I wonder if her placing presence over pistols is this what it looks like to multiply the treasure? The valuable treasure that has been entrusted to us. The passage of scripture we heard read today is located toward the very end of Matthew's gospel. It is a chapter that includes three 
parables that are all designed to help people be ready for Christ's return. These three parables about being ready are the last thing that Matthew places on the ears and minds and hearts of the readers before we read about the plot to kill and later crucify and see Jesus being resurrected. Matthew employs language about the kingdom of God more than any other gospel writer. In fact, Matthew uses the word kingdom or king 77 times, with 71 of those instances used in a theological sense. Matthew wants people to understand how followers of Jesus are called to bring about a different way of life. One that is radically different from the accepted norms and power structures of society. Jesus has ushered in what Daniel Erlander describes as a realm of God's extravagant grace, mercy, forgiveness, and compassion. A place where those labeled unworthy or impure are received unconditionally. A world of abundant manna that is shared for all. And this way of life is one that benefits all. All persons, all communities, all nations, not just a select few. It is a kingdom that is worth dropping all other commitments to joyfully receive, Erlander writes. The realm of God's extravagant grace, mercy, forgiveness, and compassion is a reality that is worth dropping all other commitments to joyfully receive. What have you dropped to joyfully receive? God's extravagant grace. Mercy, compassion. What amount of time, what fear, what mindset have you relinquished? only to discover that what you let go of was actually like tiny little seeds that produced something you could not have imagined. What investments have you made that have reaped more dividends than you thought were possible. Well, I have been rather savvy when it comes to investing in my retirement account, thanks to the church and the denomination's generosity. I have yet to make a good investment when it comes to real estate. In fact, I only live in regret 
for the first home I ever purchased in North Carolina, and certainly the one I bought in 2005 at the height of the real estate market. To say that I envy people who bought real estate in 2008 or anyone with a 3% or less mortgage is an understatement. But I can't recall a single time when I sought to make an investment in the name of Jesus that I now regret. In fact, the moments that have felt the most riskiest are some of the moments that have given me the most joy and certainly the most gratitude as I look back upon them. From spending an excessive amount of time with a former member of our church who lives with significant mental health challenges, but who taught me more than any other church member will ever come close to teaching me, to speaking out in familiar and unfamiliar spaces against our denomination's official teaching on human sexuality before saying that I feel called to offer the same kind of pastoral care to every member of our church, even if it cost me my ordination. There are other occasions where I dropped something that felt like an inconvenience or let go of time only to discover that I was privy to a privilege for which no one is truly worthy. From leaving a birthday party to sit in an emergency room with the mother who was afraid to go home because she had witnessed her adult son jump to his death earlier that day, to walking with a family who I didn't know a year ago, but who lost their two-year-old incredibly suddenly and tragically a year ago tomorrow. What I've learned is that God's capacity to multiply doesn't depend upon me choosing the investment, but rather showing up when God has chosen the investment, the place where I am to invest, for me, when all I have to do is to show up and to make myself available to both God as well as to my neighbors. In our passage today, there are three slaves. Slaves would have regularly held the role of an accountant for their master in antiquity. And we're told that these three slaves are given talents according to their ability. 
A talent isn't a particular skill or God-given gift that we think of when we hear the word talent, but rather a talent is like a bucket of gold, a vast sum of money. In fact, people say that one talent is the equivalent of 15 years worth of wages. So think about what you have made over a 15-year period of time or what you anticipate making, and then imagine someone giving you the equivalent of five of those or two of those or one of those. Two of the workers take their money and double it like players at a poker table. These two are commended for their work. They're labeled trustworthy, a word that can also be rendered as faithful. And they're welcomed into the joy of their master. But the third one is afraid of the master, and so he hides the gift in the ground. He perceives that he has nothing. And he ends up with nothing. The response this final worker receives from his master is rather severe. But one of my favorite preachers, Tom Long, explains how in theological terms, he gets the peevish little tyrant God he believes in. The story is not about a generous master suddenly turning cruel and punitive, Long writes. It is about living with the consequences of our one's own faith. If one trusts the goodness of God, one can boldly venture out with eyes wide open to the grace in life and can discover the joy of God's providence everywhere. And I wonder, I wonder how your actions, how it is that we live and love and speak and act, what do our actions reveal about what we really to believe true to be, believe to be true about God? Do our lives point to a big, generous God? Or do our lives make God rather small? Do we venture out with eyes and hands and hearts wide open as we respond to the priceless gift of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God that is at hand in and through us? Or do we choose to believe in a small God who has seemingly not done much of anything since scripture was written some 2,100 years ago. Do we understand the extraordinary value of the gifts that God has bestowed upon us? Gifts of love and mercy, justice and compassion. Gifts that whenever they are shared do not go away, but instead multiply. Or are we risk-averse? Since you never really know what might happen if you forgive the seemingly unforgivable, welcome the stranger, seek justice in a world of injustice, or speak the truth in a cacophony 
of lies. Do we let go of what has been entrusted to us? Or do we protect it? My professor of preaching, Rick Lisher, notes how this parable suggests a reckoning that is larger than an assessment of an individual's abilities or their annual pledge. The true reckoning awaits the entire community whose faithfulness in ministry is judged every day. And one day we'll all be judged decisively. And after that, it'll be too late. I started this sermon series some six weeks ago by sharing how we are in the middle of the largest and the fastest religious shift in the history of our country. Except for the other large and big shifts have happened and the church has grown and right now people are leaving in droves. But what if this time isn't a time to be sad or a time to lament? But what if this time is filled with more possibilities than ever for the church to make a real and vital difference in the communities of which we are a part? What God-sized risks are we being called to take? Where are we playing it safe in ways that actually don't benefit anyone? Certainly no one that's not here. Instead of letting go in ways that could benefit more people than we can right now imagine. What would it take for us to become a church that the whole world would take seriously? would look at us and say, that is what the gospel looks like when it is multiplied. What are you willing to let go of? What are we willing to let go of? Where are we being called to risk? To stop playing faith, discipleship, church so safely. Are you willing to commit yourself or recommit yourself to the costly ways of Jesus? Are you willing to offer yourself to God in a way that reveals how you really do want to be used by God? Are you willing to not just sing, 
but actually pray and believe. Take my life. It's scary, even just saying those words out loud. Take my whole life, God. Take my whole life. And let me be the fullness of who you're calling me to be. Even if it means letting go something I love. Take my life Lord. As we prepare to sing these words, you're invited to respond as you feel led. You're invited to come and kneel at the altar for a time of silent prayer. You're invited to come and to allow grace or I to anoint you with oil. You're invited to stay right where you are and sing. There are a couple prayers that I know God always answers. One of them we stopped praying here because God answered it so quickly. And that was God, please send us the people no one else wants. But the other question, prayer, that God is quick to answer all the time, is take my life, Lord. Take my life and let it be.